All right, welcome to day seven in Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be looking at Genesis chapters 14 through 16, Matthew 5, 43 through 624, and Psalm 6. So let's dig right in. There's actually a lot of stuff to cover today. Um, so Genesis 14 uh, is a little bit of a different story um, in the life of Abraham here in that uh, it's the only story where you have Abraham fighting, where you have this kind of military and even international flavor to it. Um, and um, it tells a story of how <clears throat> uh, there are four kings, and these kings are uh, from uh, the east um, and the north. Um, for example, Keterleomer is said to be the king of Elam, which is part of what would one day be Persia. So these kings come uh, kind of on, in a conquest mode, and they come and subjugate five kings of the valley of um, the valley of the Dead Sea. This, of course, is where Lot is living, uh, the city in which he lives. Sodom is included among these, and these these uh, these kings of the valley become subject to these apparently much more powerful. Uh, foreign kings for 12 years, and that probably involves paying heavy tribute and uh, perhaps military commitments and all um, a few other things. Uh, and I would also note that um, if you if you look at the, the 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 years, the temporal markers in these passages, um, this happens apparently before Abraham is in the land this initial subjugation of them. Uh, because if you look at the end of chapter 16, Abraham has Ishmael when he is 86 years old. And in chapter 12, he's 75 when he comes in the land. So these people are subjugated 12 years. In the 13th year, they rebel. And then in the 14th year, um, they are uh, the, the kings come to resubjugate them. So yeah, that's exactly what happens, right? After 12 years, the kings of the valley decide, we don't want to pay tribute anymore. And so uh, the, these foreign kings come and uh, they, they, they take even more cities in their, in their conquest and their campaign to resubjugate these kings. And, uh, and they meet once again in battle uh, with the five kings of the Dead Sea Valley. And uh, it is apparently a pretty humiliating defeat for the kings of the valley. And this year, this time as, as punishment, uh, Keterleomer and the other and the three other kings uh, take plunder and they take slaves. Uh, now Abraham is, or Abram at this point, is told of this. And just to get an idea of, of how powerful of a man he is at this time, he's able to muster 318 men who are uh, trained and skilled enough to be able to do to, to fight against these uh, these kings. And so they go and they pursue them all the way to the north. This is this is um, an extremely long distance, uh, and they engage in battle with them there. They defeat them, and then they they chase them um, all the way as far north as Damascus. So this is a this is a very long distance. Um, they bring back um, the plunder. They bring back the slaves, and returning victorious. Abraham is met by a priest named Melchizedek. Uh, and we could go into this and uh, talk about the significance of Melchizedek for a while, but I'm just going to highlight a few things because when we get to Hebrews, some other connections are going to be highlighted. 
So I, I'll kind of save some of this for Hebrews. But Melchizedek is apparently a king of a city called Salem, which is probably short for Jerusalem. And he is also a priest. He also functions in a priestly function and worships and worships a god whom he knows as El Elyon, which is typically and probably appropriately translated God Most High. And uh, and and so Abram uh, recognizes in him a kindred spirit, kind of a, a righteous pagan in a sense, or, or somebody who. Who, who has enough understanding of what God is like to be, um, for, for Abraham to be able to worship with him. And that he does. He, he gives him a, a tenth of everything, which is, uh, which is something you do towards the, uh, towards, towards the priesthood who, who worships on your behalf. Uh, note that that's how the tithes are paid later on in, in uh, the Old Testament. And... Uh, they worship, and and the blessing that he receives by Melchizedek is, Blessed be Abraham, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then comes out the king of Sodom, and the king of Sodom is all business, right? Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Okay, so Abram is is thanking God, uh, probably offering sacrifices to God, and... um, and the king of Sodom just wants to do, and, and you can even tell in these short things, right? The, like how begrudging this is and, and give me the persons, take the goods for yourself. Like that's what he's got to say now. And so there's the contrast between the king of Sodom and Melchizedek. But Abram says to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, uh, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I've made Abram rich. Uh, so Abram, of course, is is one of the promises is that he'll be blessed by the Lord. And part of this is being made strong, made, made great, material blessing. And he wants it to be very clear that this is coming from the Lord. And so he purposely does not, re- does not take uh, what could be claimed to be rightly his, uh, the, 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 the plunder that he, that he recovered when he defeated the invading kings. Um, so, uh, but the, the final thing I'll note here is that how he does, however, uh, let uh, Honor, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. And these are, of course, his allies. And um, I think this is significant in that Abram doesn't do this out of his devotion to God, but he understands that not everybody else has devotion of God uh, to God. So it's not like he's going... It's not like he's. It, this would be like a boss uh, collecting a tithe from everyone in the office to give to his own church, right? Abram is not going to do that. Um, so then we go to chapter fifteen, and it's sometime after these things, and the word of the Lord comes to Abram in a vision. And remember, things are. If you're Abram, you're kind of you kind of probably have a lot of questions by now. You've been in the land for uh, over a decade. And things are the the Lord has blessed you, but there's but the the real thing that you care about if you're Abram is this promise of offspring, this promise of 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 how my my name is going to be uh, made great through my offspring. Because remember, God has promised to your offspring, I will give this land. So this is very important. And and if you're Abram, remember the first candidate was Lot. 
that 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 would be his offspring because Sarai, of course, is barren. Um, And Lot, however, has been separated from Abram, so it doesn't really look like that's going to be. And so here we see Abram saying that he believes that the heir of his house is going to be Eliezer of Damascus, which is probably Abram's highest, most highly regarded household servant. Uh, but, uh, and God's like, you know, or Abram's like, God, you know, you haven't really given me anything. This is, this is, uh, this is who am I've got. And so I guess this is how we're doing it. Right, God. And then, uh, the Lord says, no, 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 this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brings him outside, tells him to look at the stars. And he says, if you can number those, that's what your offspring are going to be like. Uh, and remember, he's already said that his, his offspring will be like the dust of the earth. Um, and then, uh, so, so that's how God answers this question of offspring. N- next, however, uh, God, Abram, has a question about the land. So, verse 7, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And Abram says, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And God's response is to command Abram to bring out certain animals, to cut them in half, to lay them on the ground. He doesn't do that with the birds. And what is about to happen is a covenant-making ceremony. God is going to make a covenant with Abram, just as he made a covenant with Noah and with all flesh back in chapter 9. Here he's going to do that. And uh, the first aspect of the covenant, well, what happens is God causes Abram to fall asleep, right? He puts a deep sleep on him. And the last time we saw this, we saw God making someone fall into a deep sleep and then and then creating something is when is when Adam w- fell into a deep sleep and God took from his side and fashioned Eve. Here, God is doing something of also of of very um, very, very big magnitude. And so he, causes Abram to fall asleep. And then he promises that Abram's offspring will be sojourners in a land not their own, and that they will be servants there afflicted for 400 years. This is, of course, predicting what will happen to his offspring in Egypt. So looking back on this, the Israelites will not think that this is some kind of accident where God has lost control or that for some reason the gods of the Egyptians are not as powerful as the one true God. But no, this is part of the very covenant of Abram that this is going to happen to them. And um, God also promises that they will come back to this land. He will bring them out. So he also promises the exodus. And the reason for this delay, it says, is that the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That's verse 16. Amorites here is another way of referring to the native people of the land, uh, also called Canaanites. The, the, in general, the people who, who live natively in the land uh, where Abram is sojourning. As we read through the Bible, those of you who, who have before understand that when Israel eventually, when the Israelites eventually come back into the land, they they um, are to put the Canaanites to the sword, and this is part of God's judgment against them. And here, however, it seems that uh, that God is uh, is waiting, is delaying this 
um, in order for the degree of sin that these people will freely choose to justify that kind of judgment. Um, so this this uh, obviously dovetails with some of the other themes of judgment we've seen so far in the in the flood. Um, and uh, God knows what will happen, but it has not yet happened, and so this delay is going to happen. Then something very interesting occurs. So the sun goes down, and a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appears. This, it's it's hard to miss, represents God in this covenant ceremony. And uh, and then the, the torch passes between the pieces of the animals, and the Lord makes this formal promise then. This is almost like, you know, the putting on of the wedding ring. You could think of it in a wedding ceremony. To your offspring, I will give this land from the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And then he goes and he lists uh, several different uh, people who are inhabiting the land. Um, so this is the essence of the Abrahamic covenant. Um, now, the, now, the interesting thing here is that... Uh, is 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 contained in the symbolism of what's going on here. Uh, we see a similar thing. To, to illustrate this, I'm going to go to Jeremiah chapter 34. So in Jeremiah chapter 34, this is way later in Israelite history, and God is, is, uh, is chastising them for breaking the covenant. And look how he words this. He says, um, this is uh, Jeremiah chapter 34, verses 13. Um, uh, sorry, that's not the right verse there. Um, okay, verses 18 and 19. Um, he says, And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. Okay, Um so the significance of passing between animals who have been cut in half in a covenant-making ceremony is that you're essentially saying, so shall happen to me if I violate the terms of this agreement. We know this also from various other ancient Near Eastern treaties that come to us from around this time. That's the significant of the uh, significance of the animals. If, if you break this covenant, then then this is going to happen to you as they've been as their lives have been given so your life will be given and the extraordinary thing here is that if you're an ancient near eastern king and you're entering into a uh, a covenant with someone who is beneath you who who are you who's going to be walking through the pieces it's obviously going to be the 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 king who is subject to the other right the lower one but here God, of course, who is, the, who is the greater party between him and Abram, subjects himself to this kind of covenant commitment. He doesn't say, Abram, cross, uh, walk between these pieces. He says, I will do it. And this, this is how sure my promise is to you. If you want to know, Abram, how shall I know that I will possess it? Here's how you can know. Very interesting. Um, now, chapter 16 is the chapter that tells us about the birth of Ishmael, and um, it's important to note, to track with where Abram's thinking likely was at this time. So remember, Lot is uh, out of the picture, Eliezer of Damascus is out of the picture, God has said, no, your very own offspring will be your heir, but he's said nothing about Sarai, and so as they wrestle with the promise of God, well, how is this going to happen? Sarai comes up with the idea, look, I've got this maidservant named Hagar. Why don't you go into her and um, 
and have um, and 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 try to produce an offspring with her. Why don't you, ta- in essence, take her as a concubine? And um, this seems to have been fairly common practice in the ancient world um, for, for to deal with this situation. One of the ways in which a, a couple would deal with barrenness, uh, especially a wealthy couple. Um, but it is here kind of portrayed as an act of faithlessness. And I think even as something that um, that is that is morally uh, inappropriate. And of course, looking at this from standing back and looking at this, we see Hagar in a a very vulnerable, exploitative role. And this is uh, this is uh, this is not okay. And this is an example of how the Bible shows its characters warts and all. It's not making an effort to make Abram into this righteous hero or anything. Uh, it grapples with the reality, like here are people who are struggling to, to walk with God and they failed. And sometimes their failure had really bad effects on the people around them. And I think this is, this is one of them. And, um, so Hagar does get pregnant and she looks on contempt with contempt on Sarai. And it's hard to, uh, it, it's there's throughout the story there's a bunch of details that we don't really know but you can imagine kind of her hand on her belly and you know what do you think he'll have my eyes or abram's eyes sarah you know and and sarah here is not presented in a very um favorable light right she she makes life miserable for hagar because of this so miserable that hagar flees and um, is on um, is heading back to Egypt where she's from. This is this is on the way of Shore. The the road of Shore is how you get from Canaan to Egypt. But if you think of it, it doesn't really make sense that this would be a a good plan for her, right? What is what is an uh, a former slave woman who is pregnant who is single going to do in Egypt, right? What is her life going to look like as opposed to being with Abram and Sarai, unpleasant as it is? And so the angel of God meets her and he's like, and he gives this great promise to her as well. He says that 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 her offspring will, will be uh, so great that they cannot be numbered for multitude. You're going to have a son you're going to call him Ishmael, which means that the Lord has listened. The Lord listens. The Lord hears. The Lord has heard your affliction. So throughout the narratives of Abram, God is constantly attentive to Hagar, watching over her. God is going to take care of you. You need to step out in faith. In faith, And as a result, Hagar um, calls the name of the Lord, you are a God of seeing, for truly, she said, truly here you have seen him who looks after me. So she names God. In Hebrew, the name is El-Roi, and, um, and what is significant about this uh, is that here you have this slave woman who has been used by her, her, her master and is in the middle of the desert, and she gives a name to God. Very significantly, this is the only place in the entire Bible where a human being gives a name to God. And, uh, of course, she goes back, bears a son to Abram, and that son is Ishmael. Okay, let's uh, look at Psalm 6 briefly on our way over to the New Testament, to Matthew. Um, Psalm 6 is another Psalm of David, and this is another one in which David is crying out in affliction, um, 
And I think that's very significant. One thing that struck me today as I was reading this is that uh, here you have, obviously David is very, very um, torn up in this. Um, he, he says things like, I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. Anyone who's been deeply hurt can kind of relate to what he's talking about. This idea, you know, you just cry until there's no more tears left. Like this is whatever he's going for. We don't know through. We don't know exactly which historical circumstance this psalm is written to is terrible. And there's nothing in here to say that the circumstances change. Okay? This isn't like but you lifted my head and gave me victory over my enemies and things like that. No, like this is David um, uh, penning a psalm when things are terrible and the outcome is not clear. Um, and yet he's able to say at the end of it, depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. How fitting is that to, on the same day we read Genesis 16, right? The Lord has heard your affliction, Hagar. Call him Ishmael. And here, David, the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. And this is the resolution to the psalm, the fact that God hears me and the hope of what, we'll do, what he will do. I don't see the outcome yet, but I know my God hears me when I pray to him and um and just like Hagar doesn't know what the outcome is going to be, David doesn't know what the outcome is, be, is going to be. We don't know what the outcome is going to be, um, at least in terms of the situations that, that drive us to pray to God like this. Um, but it is that God hears us that is enough. Okay, let's talk a little bit about our passages from Matthew. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 is where we pick up. And this is the passage... Uh, Jesus is still, this is the final one of Jesus's antitheses. You have heard it said, but I say to you, uh, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Uh, this is a little bit of a difficult one, though, um, because uh, certainly the Old Testament, in fact, Leviticus tells us to love our neighbor. It never commands us to hate our enemy, though. So it's a little difficult to grasp exactly what Jesus is um, responding to here. Is he responding to uh, the way in which the law is taught at this time uh, and period, as opposed to explicitly what's written in the law of God? Um, but um, or or is he is he summing up some kind of like general tenor of the Old Testament that? You know, like David, as we just saw, right, is, is praying that the Lord would avenge him against his enemies and things like that. Uh, but at any rate, um, the attitude that Jesus will have for those within his kingdom, where he is fulfilling all that the law and the prophets have, have pointed to, is that we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And those of us who have true people who are would be considered enemies, knows how difficult this is. Um, uh, we, this, is this, is not a, a, this is not a small order. And, um, but I don't think it's without cause that Jesus combines praying for them with loving them. Uh, if you have somebody who has done you wrong and you need to get at a different position and forgive them, as we'll see in a minute, that, it, that that is necessary for us if we are in the kingdom of God, then praying for them is one of the greatest things that you can do. That is how your heart will begin to turn. It is difficult to pray for someone's good, to pray for someone's walk with the Lord, um, and, and still 
have bitterness in your heart to them. That is a great way that God begins to change our hearts. So if you are challenged by this, I would recommend uh, doing what Jesus tells us to and praying for them. And uh, if you need, if the, the question is, well, why they've wronged me and I have a right to be angry? Well, because you're actually making yourself like God because God is forgiving. Jesus says you'll be like your father in heaven because he sends the rain on the just and the unjust, those who hate him as well as those who love him. Um, he, he provides for them. He, he does things that are loving towards them. Um, you're no different than the people outside of the kingdom of God because everyone loves those who love them, but it's the one who can love their enemies that surely tr- shows that they are my disciple. Uh, then we get into these ideas of practicing righteousness before other people. Um, so we've got that. Then in the next paragraph, um, the the idea of giving before others so that others see you. Uh, then we've got the idea of praying before others so that others see you. And then finally, um, after the Lord's Prayer, fasting so that others may see you. And remember, we I noted that at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that um, you should let your light shine so that people can see that and glorify your Father in heaven. Here, however, these people are doing good things so that they may be seen by others, so that they may be praised by others. And in that sense, Jesus is like, well, you'll have your reward. If that's what you want, they'll see you and they'll praise you. But if you want a reward from your Father in heaven, you shall have, should have no regard for that. In fact, um, you need to be careful about practicing your righteousness so other people can see it. Uh, because it's very easy that pride can and, and desire to be thought well of by others can take over. You need to be careful when you give to the needy, because a lot of people give to the needy so that they can be praised for how generous, generous they are. When you give, it should be no big deal. Do it so that your right hand doesn't even know what your left is doing. Um, because when, when you do it that way, you know that your heart is oriented towards God, because God, you're doing it um, not that's one way to ensure that you're not doing it to be praised by others. And then finally with prayer, well not finally, but with prayer, um, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand in the street corners so that they can be seen by others, right? And and they offer these, 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 these prayers. Um, instead, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your father who's in secret. This doesn't mean that public prayer is never appropriate. We obviously see plenty of public prayer. Uh, We see public prayer by Jesus. We see it by the apostles. But the idea is, uh, again, that that this is something that should be between you and God. The the majority of your prayer should be between you and the Lord um, and ensuring that your heart is right in doing it. You're, you're not doing it to see, be seen by others. And then the other thing he says about prayer is he says, don't heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do. Um, and I think this this is a little bit convicting, right? Because a lot of times when we pray, uh, I'll say, I, I pray with others a lot, and the temptation can be to pray so that the others who are with you can get into your prayer. And you almost score how good your prayer is by how many amens you can get. No, no, no. (laughs) Um, Jesus says, don't do that. And in fact, 
let your words be few when you pray. It's not as if God doesn't already know what you need. It's not as if you're going to, you're telling him something he doesn't know. And it's not as if God's sitting up there with a stopwatch saying, okay, this person has prayed for this X amount of time for this. I'm going to listen to him more. No, have a realistic view about God. Gentiles think that way. And Gentiles are those who don't even know the God of Israel. They don't know what he's like. You do. And, and you realize that that he even he knows what you need even before you ask him. So it's not about how long your prayers are. It's not about how wordy they are, but rather pray, Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Notice this significance of adoration of God, the idea that it is your kingdom that uh, that that I desire. I'm syncing up with your will. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm not ordering God around. I'm not telling him what he does needs to do. It is going to him with our needs. Give us this day our daily bread. And it is going to him for forgiveness. Forgive our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So it's not disconnected from what we've actually done in our real lives, right? We're, we like like, I'm coming to God, I need to be living as a faithful disciple, I need to be forgiving those who have wronged me, like he's told me to love my enemies here, lead me away from temptation, and deliver uh, us from evil. Um, And then you get this challenging statement, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This, of course, is a very difficult statement, um, and I think in a nutshell that what this is getting at is that a person who has truly been, been forgiven, a person who truly knows the Lord and understands forgiveness, becomes a forgiving person. And there, and I've, it's difficult to read this any other way than saying there are no exceptions to this rule, that you, uh, if you understand forgiveness, and this is not saying it's always easy or it's always going to be automatic— but you will forgive those who wrong you. Uh, that is a sure mark of a child of God. Um, the fi- finally, uh, we we talk we read about um, not fasting to be seen by others. Um, have you ever fasted as a Christian? <laughs> Notice Jesus doesn't say if you fast; he says when you fast. Uh, not don't have time really to get into the significance of what fasting is, but it is a practice that the people of God do throughout the Bible. Um, and then finally, he talks about laying up treasures in heaven. Don't lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy, but lay up treasures in heaven which are where, where, where the things can't touch them, they cannot be corroded, um, and you are protected by God's power. Um, then you get this little parable about the eye being the lamp of the body. Uh, that's a little bit of a difficult one, right? Um, I think people are very split on what exactly this means. If the if the uh, the eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of full of darkness. Um, I think, however, what it's generally saying is that we need to be careful what we look at, uh, what catches our attention. Um, and the reason I say this is because right on the heels of this, he says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So when we think, be careful of what we look at, you know, we might be thinking about lust and uh, violent television shows or something like that. And I think those legitimately fall under this concern. But I think here is he's talking about like, what are you, what catches your eye? What are you impressed with? Um, and this will determine 
uh, whether what is in your body is light or what is in your body is darkness. Um, is it is it those who who have much in the eyes of the world and who are killing it in the eyes of the world, or is it um, is it the footsteps of Jesus that your eyes are watching? Okay, well that's it for today. Thank you for being with us, and we will see you tomorrow. Bye bye.